Welcome to NoSpinHomilies.com. I invite you to join me to reflect upon the homilies of Father Dan. Father Dan will challenge us to open our heart, mind, and soul to the Word of God. Father Dan will draw upon sacred scripture along with art, literature, and the lives of the saints to help us grow in our love and knowledge of the scripture. In doing so, we can become the living Word of God in this world. Now it is my pleasure to present to you No Spin Homilies. In the first reading for this weekend, as well as in the Gospel, we have two archetypes of stories. One story is about spiritual disorder, while the other is exactly about spiritual order. Go to the first reading from Genesis. We hear the story of creation. God first creates a garden, and then he places Adam and Eve, or humanity, in the garden. Now, we all have gardens, or at some point in time have worked on gardens, Gardens are places of color, delight, vitality, but most important, they're places of life. Regardless of the vegetation, whether it's flowers, vegetables, or fruit, gardens are a place of life. Why does God place Adam and Eve in a garden? It's because he wants all of humanity to share in God's life and to have life and life in abundance. Now, remember in the story, At the center of the garden is a tree, the tree of life. And from that tree of life, it radiates out all life throughout the garden. But also in the center of the garden is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, many of us, when we think of the story of Adam and Eve, we immediately think of the great prohibition, that they cannot eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But what I would encourage you to do is think about the great permission Remember what God says to Adam and Eve. Yes, they can't eat from just that one tree. But God also says, you may eat from all other trees, all other vines and bushes and shrubs. What is God really doing? He's giving Adam and Eve dominion over the entire garden. They can do whatever they want, eat whatever they want. See, that's the great permission. The early church fathers saw in this the great symbolism that God invites us to grow in knowledge, not just the knowledge of our faith, but in the knowledge of math and science and art and architecture and music. See, God wants us to engage all these things, engage the world, because that's what makes life rich. See, that's why God wants us to have life and to have life in abundance. Now, the great prohibition God says to Adam and Eve, they cannot eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But that's for their own good. Why is that? Because we as human beings, we cannot determine through our own intellect or will what is objective, morally evil, as well as morally good things. We don't have the capacity for that. See, this is uniquely belonging to God. Only God has the capacity to tell us what is objectively morally evil and morally good. That's why God is the sole arbitrator of telling us about what is morally good and evil. The symbolism here, if we truly make God at the center of our life, and that's what Jesus taught us last week in the gospel, then we will be able to learn from God. 
what is morally good and evil. Then we will have always life and life in abundance. We will always remain in that garden with God, just like Adam and Eve. And yet, what's the mistake that they make? They begin to listen to the serpent, the devil. Now, notice what the serpent says to them. Hey, do you know the reason why God doesn't want you to eat that fruit from that tree? Is because you'll become gods yourself. And God does not want that to happen. He wants to keep you down. Now, we realize Satan is always going to be and always will see God as a natural rival. Thing is, he gets Adam and Eve to believe that God also is a natural rival to them. They are duped by the devil. And in doing so, in that act of grabbing for that fruit from that tree, they basically are telling God, God, I don't need you into my life. And I don't need you to tell me what is morally good or evil. I can determine that on my own. And see, that is at the heart of the disaster with Adam and Eve and the fall from grace. Now, notice how the devil seduces Adam and Eve. He makes them understand and believe that God is jealous of them, that God is a rival to them. You know, and that's the great lie, the great lie that people have believed throughout the centuries, even to this present day. The lie that God looks upon us and sees us, us grubby, puny human beings as a rival, that God is somehow glorified when we are in agony, that when we are put down, that's only when God is somehow elevated, that God enjoys us, keeping us down. Well, that's an incredible lie, but that is the great lie. And it comes from the father of lies, the devil himself. And see, it's precisely when we surrender to God that God then teaches us what is objectively, morally good and evil. Once again, God teaches us this because we don't, as human beings, have the capacity in our will or in our intellect to determine that ourselves. Next in the story, we hear of the expulsion. Adam and Eve leave the garden. Now, don't read this, that God has fallen into some type of emotional snit and now he's angry with Adam and Eve and, wants to, and now wants to evict them from the garden. Instead, think of it this way. When Adam and Eve or when we determine that our will and our intellect can be the sole arbiter of what is morally good and evil, then essentially what we say to God is, I don't need you in my life. More to it, I don't need you to help me determine what is good and evil. I can do that all on my own. Well, if God is no longer in our life, then we are no longer able to exist in the garden and not have or receive life from God. So we enter into a place of lifelessness in our own accord. And see, that's what happens with Adam and Eve. Because they picked that fruit, now they tell God completely, I don't need you in my life, nor do I need you to help me determine what is morally good and evil. Therefore, they don't need God, they don't need the life that God provides them, nor do they need the garden. So that's why they leave. Now they go into a place of lifelessness because of their own accord. And yet, that continues today. The great invitation is always there. God always wants to give us life and life in abundance. But so many people reject it. So many people want to be the sole arbiter 
of determining what is good and evil in their life. And so what do they do? They reject God. They reject the life that God wants for them. They reject the garden. And now they enter into a spiritual desert place. Now, with that in mind, go into the gospel. How does the gospel begin? Jesus has just been baptized by John the Baptist. And now he begins his public ministry. What's the first thing that he does? He goes into the desert to battle and confront the devil. Now, notice the juxtaposition in these two stories. In Genesis, the story ends with Adam and Eve going into the desert. Because they believed the lies that Satan had told them, they succumbed to the temptation. And because of their own accord, now they enter into a spiritual desert. Again, remember, because of what they've done, they rejected God and therefore God's life. So what is the place in this world that you can think of that is a place of lifelessness? Well, a desert. If you've ever gone into any desert, you'll realize there's very little life in a desert. It's lifelessness. Well, that's what Adam and Eve now enter into. But so does Jesus Christ. He goes into the desert and he is tempted by the devil. But in this case, he triumphs over the devil. He resists the temptation. Now you'll say, well, what does this all mean? Well, this is the beauty of these two stories. They must be read directly together, back to back. We can see from the very start of Jesus' ministry, we know what he's here to do. He's going to begin to turn around everything that went bad. He's going to make right everything that went wrong with Adam and Eve. He will bring obedience to a people that knows nothing but disobedience to God. And he will bring life to a world that knows lifelessness without God. Now, with that in mind, go to the temptations. The first temptation, the temptation to focus on material goods, things that will satisfy our bodily desires, food, drink, pleasure, entertainment, whatever it is. Now, as I said before, we are Catholics. We're not Puritans. We should be able to enjoy these things, food, drink, entertainment, but we can't make them the ultimate good in our life. When they become the center of our life, they will dominate our life like an addict. Therefore, we can't allow our bodily desires and the need to satisfy them to be the sole determining element in our life. And see, that's where God comes in. God should be at the center of our life. We can still enjoy food and drink and entertainment, but see them for what they are. Instead, God should be the sole determining element in our life. The second temptation, Jesus goes up to the parapet of the temple, which is the roof of the temple. Now remember, the temple is not only the religious epicenter, but it's also the political and the economic center for the entire country of Israel. To be on top of it essentially means you're on top of all of Jewish life, a place of glory. You know, everyone look at me and notice me. The temptation here, vain glory, the inflated ego, following our own will, serving our own interests. See, at the heart of sin is the person that says, my life is all about me, about my will, my self-interest, my wants, my desires, and satisfying all them. I'm number one. Everything and everyone in this world comes second to me. See, that's the sin of Adam and Eve. But at the heart of the spiritual life is the person that says, my life is not about me but instead about me in relationship to Christ 
and living out that relationship, that faith, to the best of my abilities every day of my life, such that I align my will to the will of God, so that my thoughts are the thoughts of God. My words are the words of Christ. My actions are the actions of Jesus. Finally, the third temptation. The devil takes Jesus up to a high mountain. He sees all the glorious kingdoms of the world. And the devil offers these kingdoms to him. This temptation, temptation for power. We see this throughout world history. Power is deeply alluring. When we make power the ultimate good in our life, we become spiritually corrupt. Look at world history. Some of the key figures, Alexander the Great, Caesar, Napoleon, Stalin, even now, we have that in our world. St. Augustine once said, this is the libido dominante, the lust to dominate. Notice also, too, what the devil says to Jesus. All these kingdoms have been given to me, and I will give them to you if you bow down and worship me. That's a stunning indictment of the powers of this world. But nonetheless, it's true. We rise up to any position, whether it's in employment, at work, or even within the community. There's always the temptation to dominate others, to manipulate others. And yet, it's not worth the price. The price is our soul. If we make power the ultimate good in our life, then we have to worship the devil. See, that's why these readings, first reading from Genesis and the Gospel, are beautiful. They're very appropriate as we start Lent. We recognize that we all have temptations in our life. No one is immune. We all have temptations. They come in different forms. What we can't do is follow the example of Adam and Eve. Instead, we must reach out to God. We truly need God in our life now more than ever. See, with Jesus in our life, he will defeat those temptations that we have in our life, just like he defeated them in the desert. And when that happens, then Jesus will always be a source of life and life in abundance from God. And may the peace and the grace of Jesus Christ rest upon you always.